right. Well, a lot of folks were uh, wanting a Bible study, and a lot of folks wanted to continue the American Legacy series. It's a little hot here. Maybe turn down the mic, a little feedback. A lot of people want to continue the American Legacy series. And uh, Brett was asking me all week, what book are we going to study? And I kept saying, I have no idea. It was about 3.30. I still had no idea today. I wasn't comfortable walking away from the American Legacy series. Um, but in the same regard, um, I want to I wanna focus on the foundations of the American Legacy series. So we're going to do both. We're going to do what I call Western theology. It's the framework for how we arrived at this form of government of a constitutional republic where it goes on to say we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. So we obviously know in the Declaration of Independence there's four references to God in the Declaration of Independence. We've studied those. We also see the, the laws of nature and nature's God. That's another reference to it. Divine providence, we see that reference in, in the Declaration of Independence. And we've gone through this idea. So we, we have this purpose statement, this mission statement. Then we've gone to the Constitution, which is the bylaws, and begins with this sovereign that is established by the consent of the governed as it's gone through, which started the revolution. This consent of the governed then begins with our bylaws, which is we, the people. It's a preamble to the Constitution. So the sovereign is people. And the reason why we're sovereign is because we're created equal. And for consent of the governed, I can't do to you anything that you don't give me permission to do. And so the legislature, as we've studied many, many times, the legislature is the one that the sovereign elects. Then the legislature uh, then appoints the president through the electoral college. The president then appoints judges. And so you have these three branches of government that separate the powers because they understand that concentrated power is dangerous and that uh, we want to remove ourselves from an oligarchy or a tyranny. And we want to be able to have freedom and this idea of the laws of nature and nature's God. So the, the, the illustration I've given you is you have an acorn and that acorn, if you put it in a closet and lock it, it remains an acorn. But if you take that acorn, put it into soil, cover it, put water with it and you get sunlight, it will experience its full nature as a full grown oak tree over time, right? So with mankind, the laws of nature and nature's God, the idea is that we want to create a form of government that would allow man to experience the full nature of what he was intended to be, recognizing that there's a creator endowed by our creator, certain inalienable rights, so that each man and woman would have the ability to flourish in that law of nature and experience the fullness of the nature they were designed to occupy. Where does all this come from? Where does, where does this idea come from? How did, how did this form of government ever come to the face of the earth? And we did cover a little bit in, in where we talk about this Judeo-Christian ethic. And we did cover a little bit of that. And we haven't gone through quite a bit in, in regards to democracy, which we will in time. But I wanted to go even further back and take a look at Western theology because the basis of Western theology is what gave us a constitutional republic. And if we look at Eastern philosophy or we, we look at any of these other ideas, whether it's Islam or Buddhism or any of those things, completely contrary or different than what we experience in Western theology. Now, I, I wanted to go through this uh, tonight, and I wanted to do a foundation for us, and I wanted to begin with this word theology. If you're taking notes, this is a good one to do. Theology is two words. Uh, theos means God. Good. Smart people in here. Theos means God, and then ology. Study of, what is the what is the root word? Don't say anything, bro. What is the root word in the Greek 
for ology? Logos. Logos. What does logos mean? Mm, people say word, but it's, it's deeper than that. It's reason or intellect. And this idea, the study of, the intellect, the, the, the concept of, this thing, theos, God, the study of God, right? Not just God word. It's the study of God. It's this concept of, of, a, of a perfect being. And, and this word logos in the Greek is, is this idea of this gift of speech or reason, this gift of speech or reason given by God to man. And what it does is it enables us to think about God and what we did tonight with music. And I asked that, that be included is we worship him. Why? Well, he's higher than we are. This is the mindset. Now, I, I don't expect you to worship. You don't have to, if this isn't your, your cup of tea, but this is an expression of Western theology. That there is, a, there is a being that's higher than us, that created us in his image, that has endowed to each of us life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Who is this being? How do we know him? And is he knowable? Well, that's theology. That's that idea of reason. That's that idea of speech, the, the ability to, to intellectually discern and understand God. Now, there's some things of God we won't be able to comprehend, um, you know, because he's an he's a infinite being. We're a finite human. Um, he, is, he is eternal. We're temporal. There's some things we can't fathom. There's no, he's not bound by space and time. We'll go into that and somewhat, I usually get stretch marks on my brain and I get a headache when I go through that. But this idea is that we want to understand what kind of being man is in relation to Western theology, as well as what man's purpose is on the earth, according to Western theology. And it allows us to understand our relationship to a creator, and this is what our founders wanted us to have. Now, one of the things that our founders didn't want us to have was a state-run religion. A state-run religion. They wanted man to have the freedom to pursue God. And it's, it's fascinating that you look in the book of John, John 18. We'll come to it a little bit later. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. And what he was basically saying is he said, if it were, my servants would, would fight. But my kingdom is not of this world. So what he's saying is... This isn't an authoritative kingdom that I'm demanding your allegiance. This is one of willingness and, and, and the ability to respond to me. And so with that idea, mankind is left on this earth that he created, breathing his air, drinking his water, living on his dirt, eating his food, his creation, and we're on it to be reconciled to him and to have a relationship, to know him. Now, from interestingly enough, we get this concept of agnosis, agnostic. And there are people that claim themselves to be agnostic and others that claim themselves to be atheists, which is not a, a Western theological mindset. But agnosis means, it's real simple in the Greek, it means without knowledge. I, I believe gnosis, I, 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 want, I, I don't know, I'm an agnostic in relation to the things of God. I believe he exists, but I don't know him. That's a, I, I have an easier time with anyone who says they're an agnostic. I, I, I know there's a God, but I don't know him. And I'm not sure of the concepts of him. And that's what our founders wanted to give us the ability to do was to come to understand that and see the full nature of what we were designed to be in a willing relationship to comprehend that as we study all of his creation, that he's knowable by his creation. You, you would know me by my work. You would know the architect of this building by their work. And that's what creation, you'll know God by his work. So if you study uh, sociology, the study of, right, anthropology, the study of man, as you study these different concepts of creation, it's where you get this word university. 
it, it's, it's from the, the understanding in Genesis where it said, let us make man in our image. And the idea is there's, there's, this, there's this picture that we, uh, it, it's unified diversity and, and, and singular plurality is the word let us. It's, it's a picture of the Trinity in, in Genesis. And it's singular plurality and unified diversity. So unified studies of theology, anthropology, right? Sociology for one goal to understand who created it all. That's where we used to get the term university from. And so with that tonight, we're going to take a look at Western theology. We're going to go through it a little bit. And uh, I'm not sure how we're exactly going to do it, but we're going to have fun trying. So let's start with uh, this very first picture here. And I'll turn on the clicker. So this is Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God said, so, God said. What does that mean? He spoke. So what makes man different than the animals? Dogs speak. Huh? Control? Huh? Conscience? And this is a good one to ponder, isn't it? This is where we come up with Western theology. Ponder these things. What makes man different than the animals? So God said, so obviously there's something profound in communicating, yes? He said, in, in the Hebrew, and I don't pronounce it properly, it's something like yahior wa yahior, uh, light be, light was. You know, let there be light, light was. Light be, light was. That's a pretty, that's a pretty significant being. Can I get a yes on that? Yeah. By the way, for those of you who are in churchgoers, yes just means amen. <laughs> that's a pretty significant being, and that would signify a creator, because ex nihilo, out of nothing, God created. How did he create? He spoke it. That's a significant being. You said yes. I said Amen. Amen also means true. So that's a significant being. You're affirming that concept that out of nothing, and here's, here's what's interesting in Western theology, we can't comprehend nothing. If I were to ask you to describe nothing, you would say nothing is darkness. Nothing is the absence of something. Nothing, And you're using the verb to be. We can't comprehend nothing because we live in a world of matter and we don't even have a word. It's only the Hebrews that had a word, and it was barach. Nothing, out of nothing, ex nihilo, God created. How'd he do it? He spoke it. And when he spoke it, he gave it order. When you consider the concept of light, it's a fascinating concept and, and how it operates and how fast it travels, right? And so that in and of itself has order and design and it's something that people can study and know. And so he said, let there be light and there was light and God saw that the light was what? So now we've got a concept of good, which means there has to be the antithesis of that, which is bad or evil. So, so now we have a moral being who declares to the world that there is order. It can be known. And in that order, there is good. And then we'll see later that there is the opposite of good, which is evil. 
So just in the very first portion of the scriptures, and, and then we'll go to the very first words, in the beginning God created. And I've said this often, regardless of where you are in your concept of God, whether an atheist or an agnostic, I'm glad you're here because you're inquisitive. And it's, you know, I'll tell you what, tyranny, and we're going to see this in a minute, Aristotle said, tyranny doesn't like to have friends. You don't want to be challenged in, in your authority over your life. And to sit in a room where we're talking about God and a God you demand doesn't exist is a challenge. And you don't want to get too close to those concepts because you may be swayed. And it may reorder your world. And I've always said, in the beginning, God created. If you can believe those first words, you'll have no problem with the rest of the Bible. I say that there's, amen means yes, for those of you who don't know what she's saying, yes. That there's, there's, this, there's two laws of the universe. There is a God and we are not him. Now, whether you believe that or you don't, we go through that and discuss this over time. But this is a concept of Western theology and how we came to this place. So he said, let there be light. God said, and that's interesting because this is Genesis. And now we go to, to the New Testament and you have John 1, 1. In the beginning was the what? It's actually logos. And it doesn't mean word. It means reason or intellect. It means the concept of creation, the concept of order, the concept of design, the concept of everything that was created and knowable and able to study with reason and intellect. So in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was what? Now, why is word capitalized? What do you usually capitalize? Proper nouns, names. Who is it referring to in regards to the Trinity? It's said in Revelation, the last book of the New Testament, that he's the Alpha and the Omega, which are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. So basically, he is the alphabet of God. Everything God wanted to communicate to man through reason, through intellect, he did through his son, Emmanuel, God with us, he took on flesh, dwelt with man, was tempted in all ways, yet was without sin, but was able to communicate as you go through the four gospels, you go through the book of Acts, you go through the epistles, you even look at Christophanes in the Old Testament of Christ's appearance and a number of other things when you, you see all this. And, and this idea that he is speaking to man, and, and actually one of the things that you'd see and you'd notice in the New Testament in Western theology is that you're going to have an earthly truth, excuse me, a heavenly truth put alongside an earthly illustration, which is where we get the Greek concept of parabolos, parable, uh, uh, parallel lines alongside each other. So, so Jesus, when he would speak as the logos, as the intellect, as the reason of God, he would lay down a heavenly truth and put it alongside an earthly illustration so that man who was temporal could, could conceive and understand an infinite God in his ways. Why? Because he wants you to know him. He wants you to come to understand what he designed you to be so that you would understand the laws of nature and nature's God and the fullness of who you're intended to be. So in the beginning was the word. So this is that picture of logos, reason, intellect. And it's the second person of the Trinity. It's a fascinating idea. Here's another way to look at it. Logos derived from a Greek word meaning ground, plea, opinion, expectation, word, speech, account, reason, proportion, discourse, the term for a principle of order and knowledge. And you remember earlier when I asked you, 
What makes man different than animals? Isn't that just adorable little puppy? I mean, I'd rather, honestly, there are times raising five children, I would rather have animals than kids. Can I get an amen? amen. Or, or yes, for those of you who aren't quite there yet. I mean, I, I've, got, I've got a, I think probably 160-pound Great Dane. His name's Dutch. I was going to bring a picture, but I didn't have time to put it together. And, and Dutch, he, he looks at you at night, and he, he sits down, he puts both paws on you, and he, he sits up like a human being, and he just looks at you. And I'm looking at him, and he's looking at me intently. And he just keeps looking at me. I, what do you want? And he's just looking at me. And I'm asking him, what do you want? He doesn't tell me. He'll pace back and forth. He'll circle around the table. He'll come back, put his paws up, look at What do you we want to go outside? I think you're saying something that I'm relating to, but I'm not sure. He'll tilt his head like, hmm, hmm. It doesn't sound like the intonation of something I've heard before. I can't repeat it. I'd like to. Just can't quite get that out. And he loves the word milk bone. At about 8.30 or 9 o'clock at night, you say, you ready for bed? He loves to go to bed at 9 and wake up at around 10. He gets a full 13 hours of sleep in. And when he gets up, he's bigger. My daughter, Kelly, um, she was born in Clovis, California. And um, at about the same time, uh, we purchased a, a, a dog. And uh, the dog's name was Tinkerbell. Was, was that about the right time, babe? Do I have it right? Well, anyways, we got a dog when the kids were young. And, and as a puppy, Kelly was a baby. The puppy grew and Kelly grew. And, and Kelly was able to look at the puppy and say, dog. And guess what the puppy couldn't do? Yeah, the puppy couldn't say Kelly. <laughs> Kelly would see a kitty and she'd say, cat. She'd look in a book and see in the book, Cow. She loved picture books as all my kids did. Michelle took them through the early readers and they began to read. And guess what happened when they were able to speak? When you're thinking in your head or you're talking to yourself, you're thinking to yourself, right? And when you're talking, you're thinking out loud. You're communicating thoughts as I'm doing with you right now. Words are leaving Sounds are leaving my mouth, entering into your brain, and thoughts are being transferred. Are you tracking me? You're nodding in affirmation. So when we say cow, you know what cow is. I don't even have to have a picture, and you already have it in your mind when I say cow. I can say dog. You go back to that little puppy, and you're going puppy. I know what he's saying, because dog and puppy are similar. One is smaller, but of the same breed. Kitty, cat, right? Right? Got that? So the children start to read, and what happens is an entire universe opens up to them. And they start to realize that there are some things more important than others. Right? So this is, I studied this. This is, I shared this earlier. My kingdom is not of this world, and this is this picture of Christ. But according to Aristotle, tyranny, in tyranny there is little or no friendship. And here's why. For where there is nothing common 
to ruler and ruled, there is not friendship either since there is not justice. The idea is you don't want to learn and a tyrant wants to keep you from learning. Because if a tyrant can keep you from learning, then you'll never understand the creator and what you were designed to be. And that he says you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. A tyrant wants to keep you from education. He doesn't want education. He wants indoctrination. He wants to redesign the world so that everything revolves around him. Why is it that there is a fence and a wall around North Korea? Keep people in. Are the guns pointed out towards South Korea or pointed towards their own people? You make a run for that gate. What do they do? They shoot you. If we can keep the gate and we have a tyrant... Then we indoctrinate all the people to realize I'm in control and we rewire everything and make them think that there is no God because if there's a God, then man knows he's free. Did you see the story of the president's uh, State of the Union address with the Korean young man that had been run over by the train and, and walked to freedom and carried his crutches? You remember that? He was North Korean and made it to South Korea and now he travels and continues to, to proclaim freedom. And it's designed in the DNA of every human being. But there's a concept when you remove a tyrant and we're given an atmosphere like a constitutional republic where mankind is created equal and we have the ability to pursue knowledge and wisdom and to study and to learn. Free to educate, free to speak. If I were to say in North Korea... The dictator is godless and wrong. What happens to me? I die. In America, you can say that. The president is a buffoon. And no one's coming after you. Fascinating, yes? You have the freedom to speak. But as we've studied in our previous sessions, only an educated populace can protect a constitutional republic to maintain the freedom. And this is what's so significant about Western theology because it's this idea in Western theology that we can know about God. And this concept of higher learning, which we call intelligent pietism, intelligent pietism. Um, Piety is duty and this intelligence is what you can know, this intellect. Now you have a duty to a creator, but you want to know him by intelligent piety and how that applies in the intellect. And so you have this concept of higher learning that some things are more important than others. Hello? Some things are more important than others. I'll give you an example. Your house is on fire. What are you going to go get as you're leaving the house? I would think your family Your dog. I didn't see the dog didn't make it, but the kids did, Pauline. Do you do you see this? This is this is there is there is this idea that there's something more important than something else. And so what is of greatest importance in a constitutional republic that begins we hold these truths to be self evident. That all men are created equal. And we're going to make make it real simple that they're endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights, among those being life, 
and liberty and the pursuit of happiness or virtue. If this is the concept of a constitutional republic and it's laid down when in the course of human events for all people at all times, this idea of a consent of the governed, what do you think the highest thing to know in that document would be if we're going to protect life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Huh? You said what? Creator. Creator. Somebody said God. So you're going to want to learn, and this is that idea that some things are more important than others to learn. How can we know God? How can we get to a place where we can know him? And this is what's so important. And why is it that tyrants don't want to have friends and they don't want to be succumbed to anyone else's intellect or reason or ability? They don't want free speech. They don't want free learning. They're certainly not friends of a, ple- of, of a free political structure or regime or an institution. They don't believe in courage, justice, wisdom, moderation. Yet Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Which is fascinating because if he's God, don't you think he could demand you to kneel? Do you think that nails held him to the cross if he's God? What kind of a God allows himself to be crucified? What's interesting about Western theology unlike any other theology in any other portion of the world, is that it's a concept of willingness to yield and to know your creator, and it's an open opportunity to get to know. Gnosis, knowledge. This idea to be able to reason, and, and the Bible says all creation speaks of the glory of God. One of the Psalms we memorized last Sunday, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein, Right? And so as you look at creation, you can know him. How? Through intellect and reason. When you study these things, the laws of nature, nature's God, you study, you know, gravity as we've talked about and many other ologies for the pursuit of one concept, which is knowing God. And as you know him, all of a sudden you realize that he has given us this ability of freedom. This idea of a perfect being. Now here's, here's what's interesting about Western theology and what we have to process tonight. Sound learning is necessary to blessings. An intelligent sense of duty to God. This is that idea of intelligent piety. That we have a duty to God. Now what would that duty be? This is, this is what's interesting. If there is a God, and if there is intellect, and as we studied in Genesis one twenty six, that he speaks so that man can understand him, intellect, logic, reason, morality, because we know morality because he said it was good, Right? So we know right and wrong, good and bad, yes? So this creator is declaring himself good. He's declaring himself knowable. So here we have a picture. Isn't that adorable? Isn't that good? I mean, it's just cute. And everybody loves a dog. And the dog looks like he's having a great time. My dog loves to go on walks, but I don't take him. Look at that. He's just happy. She's happy. Is there anything wrong with that picture? Hello? I'm sorry? The dog could pull her, but it's, it's not. I mean, I, I thank you for trying to find something. But it really looks like a lovely day and a little girl taking her dog for a walk. And they're walking together and there's just nothing morally bad about that. How about this picture? Is there anything morally wrong with that? One was on a chain and a leash, so is another. What about that? Did you see the chain in this picture? 
Can you see the chain now? Is there anything morally wrong with this? Wait a minute. Why is that not morally wrong? But that is. What would happen if you let that dog off the leash? If you're a crowded area, it could bite somebody, yeah? Could run, into, run out in the street, get hit by a car? I mean, this is, this is a good thing to do to keep a dog on a leash. But why, if it's good to keep the dog on the leash, is this wrong? So you're, you're saying the person's free. Come on, folks. I like contributions. Yes. No, no, one at a time. Yes. Person in God's image, not supposed to chain them. Back here, yes? God wants us, just humans, not animals? Dominion over animals. You see the Western theology here? They're equal. Wait a minute. One's, one's black, one's white. Equal how? Equal in what? Dignity. One has more clothes than the other. Obviously, there's wealth on this side. Is that equal? Equal in value, equal in dignity, but not necessarily in capacity. One has a little more authority than the other. And God doesn't, God doesn't honor that or acknowledge that, but this is mankind. So is this a picture of perfection? Hello? It's awful. Can I, can I get a yes or an amen on that? Okay, that's awful, Correct. And it's not perfect, right? I'm, I'm leading the witness. It's not perfect, correct? Okay. I just set you up. Because you declared it's not perfect. And to declare something's not perfect means that something is... Something... What's the opposite of not perfect? No. Imperfect is not perfect. What is the opposite of imperfect, not perfect? Perfect. Perfection. Is anyone in the room here perfect? Yes. (laughs) Perfectly wrong. Is anyone in the room perfect? That's not hard for us to come to that understanding. But a creator declaring perfection, that we would look at that and say that is morally repugnant and wrong and imperfect and unacceptable. Who sets that standard, man or God? Because man said that that was legal in the United States of America. Hello? Was man right? That was legal in America. Theology, theos, logos, theos, God, logos, study of something, reason and speech, a moral agent. When you're speaking, you are now a moral agent. You are communicating either truth or falsehood. You are right or you are wrong. You're using reason and intellect and it can be known. And there are truths and there are lies and there are two plus two is. Now, what is arithmetic? Arithmetic is symbols connotating amounts, right? So this is, this, this is a science of amounts studying this. And two plus two is four. Now you can 
create walls, put a tyrant in, push everyone out who believes that two plus two is four. And if they do, just shut them down and tell them to be quiet. And they will say it's three. And if they don't, you'll shoot them. Is that free learning? Is that the ability of freedom for the intellect, for man to know the laws of nature and nature's God and to flourish and to become fully what they were intended to be? Do you understand this? Is it indoctrination or education? Indoctrination. So the tyrant doesn't want freedom for the people. The tyrant wants you to do what they say. And in a constitutional republic, there has to be the freedom. Now with freedom comes the ability of licentiousness, right? We remove, and and here's what happened in the 50s. We wanted to throw off all moral restraint. And so one of the arguments that we had, and we studied this before, one of the arguments we had was freedom of speech is the freedom to be able to print and produce pornography. Now that is a freedom, but what happens with Aristotle who said the doing virtue and the thinking virtue? We now go to the passion instead of the intellect and the reason and man becomes an animal, and is just driven by passion. Remember, the doing virtue is, I'm hungry, we all have passions. And if we just act on our passion without the thinking virtue of intellect and reason, the logos, which is to pursue a higher understanding and to pursue excellence, an imperfect creature seeking a perfect understanding. But if we abandon that and we're just driven by passion, we can dumb down the populace and just make them zombies. Then we dominate them. And that's where... Augustine came up with libido dominandi. I can oppress you by appealing to your doing virtue instead of your thinking virtue. And you're just driven by your passions instead of your convictions. Where do convictions come from? You know something to be true. But how can you know something to be true if you're never educated? So the first thing we need to do if we're going to control is to remove the ability for the individual to be educated. And we inebriate and anesthetize them with doing virtues, which is passions, as opposed to convictions. Convictions come with intellect, reason, morality, and understanding. And that's a pursuit to know God. So take concept of God out, and we can then control what is right and what is wrong. And thus we can say, this is right. But God says it's wrong. Is there anything apart from reason necessary to understand God? We like things that have no imperfections. How would we, being imperfect, know that perfection exists? You go to a supermarket, you see a bruised apple, and you see a really nice shiny apple. Which one are you going to buy? Shiny apple. It's closer to perfection. So we're obviously looking for the good. And that's what Aristotle said. What is the good? Are you seeking that good? This is why in Western theology, reason, intellect, study, all of the liberal arts were given to us, and that's what we've taken away from our universities today. A perfect being would have mastery of everything. An imperfect be- as imperfect beings, we do not have mastery over everything, but we strive to know the one who does. To know God is to know wisdom. The idea is this. If there's a perfect being... If there's a perfect being and we're an imperfect creature, will we ever obtain perfection? No, I'm surprised it took so long. 
I mean, have you ever met anyone who's obtained perfection? They may think they have, but have you ever met anyone who's ever obtained perfection? No. Why is that? Why is that? We're not what? But we know perfection exists because we pursue it, yet no one's ever obtained it. What are we talking about here in Western theology? A fallen man. We have a perfect God and an imperfect human. Yet the scripture says we've been created in his likeness. What does that mean? The ability to reason, intellect, logos, to know him. How do we do that? Through study of ologies, reason, logos. Yes? When we take that away, we take away man's ability to know who they are. Who is man? We've been created, endowed by our creator with inalienable rights, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. That produces freedom. You take that away from man, take away his moral ability to learn, and you take away his freedom. That's Western theology. I want to talk to the the pietistic Christians in our culture today who think what I'm doing right now is a waste of time in the church. And, and, and for those of you who aren't churchgoers, let me just tell you what I face as a pastor because I'm teaching this class that you like, but you're not completely thrilled about coming to a church. Let me just tell you what the Christians say about what I'm doing out there. Oh, we just preach the gospel. I just preached about Jesus. That's, that is not intelligent pietism. That's debased pietism. What I mean by that is intelligent pietism is this idea that, that we have a duty to God, but we have a duty to our intellect and our mind and to reason to apply that to set men free. To just say I'm about preaching the gospel means that God doesn't have the ability to, to be known in all the different realms of creation, whether it be in media or in arts and entertainment or in politics. That, that none of his intelligent design, none of his reason, none of his understanding given to man will affect culture in any way, shape, or form. So when the church is just about doing, hey, will you raise your hand to receive the Lord? That's making a convert, not a disciple. A disciple is somebody who now has intelligent pietism. They have come to realize there's a God. I'm not him. I'm imperfect. He's perfect. He's knowable. How is that? By reason, intellect, morality, and this ability to communicate, which is a moral agent. And I have this responsibility to build these things as I'm doing tonight. I'm speaking, you're learning. This learning is giving you knowledge to be able to build and to be able to have concepts and creation, this mindset. If we remove that, that is not intelligent pietism. All we are is an exercise in futility. We're limiting knowing God to one element. Learn to cherish liberty of the soul, to defend the civil and religious liberty of the American order, and to live with intelligent piety as self-governing citizens and scholars. Uh, Virtus tentamine gode, strength rejoices in the challenge. This truth means that to be strong in virtue, one must welcome a challenge to act at all times worthy of the blessings of liberty. The idea is this. If you're not going to study and you're going to allow someone to remove your ability to know God's creation and to know reason and intellect and morality, and you're going to willingly subject yourself to ignorance and stupidity, you will be a slave. 
and the freedom that you espouse and, and enjoy without educating yourself and pursuing and implementing that with generations to come and demanding it of the culture in which you live, you, you are advocating for the slavery of mankind. That's a huge conviction to lay upon a culture. But that's the reality of what we've been entrusted with. Why is it that the very first public school act in America was the old Satan deluder act? Because these intelligent pietists realized that if the children don't know how to read, they will be enslaved. Abraham Lincoln debating with Stephen Douglas. And Stephen Douglas said, a Negro is no different than a pig. They are both to be bought and sold. At which point Abraham Lincoln said, yes, they are bought and sold, but you don't have to keep the pig from learning how to read. What did he mean? What did he mean? Once the human being learns how to read with speech, they are now a moral agent because now the universe opens because they can say dog and cat and communicate. And that makes them different from a pig. And now they know that they're free. Stop them from reading and you own them. That's what enslaves man. That is a design of Western theology. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. Logos, intellect, reason, the mindset of the human heart. Do you understand this? I will... um, I'll say what Aristotle said. He said, when human beings use words, the whole universe is unlocked to them. Speaking is the thing that makes human beings who they are. And and then the other thing I wanted to share, we long for the good. We long for the good. We like things that have no imperfection. But what's amazing is if you can take away man's reason and intellect and isolate them, they think that a half a bowl of rice a day is a good thing. And you can get them to do pretty much anything you want as long as they'll settle. But freedom comes when mankind realizes, even in chains, that unless I fight for this, all mankind will suffer. Because tyranny has no friends with those who have reason and intellect. But if those who know the truth are silent, how will the rest of the world know the truth unless someone tells them? That's how you make disciples, disciplines, education. Uh, I leave the education of my children to the schools. Okay. What do you know about the schools? 
What are they teaching? And how involved are you in the process of that? Well, I'm really busy. I don't have time for that. Here's your half a bowl of rice. Have a nice day. You must participate. Otherwise, you advocate slavery for the next generation. Yes? So this is the beginning of Western theology. To know God is to know wisdom and to know freedom. And to comprehend that he is knowable. He's a perfect being. We're an imperfect creature. But he says, my kingdom is not of this world. But he gives himself access to know because all creation speaks of who he is. And the more you study, he loves that. The more you know him. And the more you study and the more you know him, the more you are a being. And this is, this is what I love. I, I wrote this down. Let me find it. Getting wisdom is satisfying. My daughter right now is at Liberty University. She's struggling over this biology class. She says, Dad, I've been up since five in the morning and I called her and it was probably about 10 o'clock at night, her time. She'd been studying the day before. She says, Dad, I just can't get my mind around it. When she does, it will be so satisfying to be under, understand all of that. Uh, my son was struggling over geometry. He couldn't grasp it. Got a tutor to come in and he sat down and all of a sudden he started, oh, and, and it just started clicking. He went from this grade to just sc- scoring high and he enjoyed it. Has anyone ever had something where you didn't comprehend it? Someone walked you through it. You got it. And how satisfying was that? Tonight, as I'm speaking, you didn't know these concepts, but now they're, they're resonating with you. Is this satisfying? So the idea is that wisdom is satisfying. Yes? You know, the wiser you become, the more simple you are. You take these intense concepts and you put them alongside simple illustrations so people can grasp them. And there's a confidence in walking in wisdom. There's just something significant about being around somebody. Have you ever been around somebody where you just don't know much about them and you're at a party and they all start and start playing piano and you're like, what? Do you know chopsticks? I, I don't know it. You're around somebody and, you know, you never knew this about, and they start speaking a foreign language. Anyone amazed by that? Yeah. Yeah. I, just, I didn't know you, you knew that. Well, that's, yeah, I do. Do you know any other language? A couple, yeah, sure. <laughs> How did they get that? How did they get that? They studied. How did they learn to play piano? Did they do it by playing Xbox? It, and was it excruciating and sitting there and going through the same ding, 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 ding? Have you ever, have you ever heard a beautiful violin? It's, it's, it's like the human voice almost. Have you ever heard anyone trying to learn to play the violin? It's like a dying cat. But they had to endure that to get to that. You apply restraints to pursue excellence, restraints towards evil. Why? Because there's a knowable God who's good. And when we do that, mankind flourishes. We want our children to have access to the best, to perfection. How do they do that? By knowing God. How do we allow them to know God? By giving them freedom. Why would anyone not want someone to know about God? Because I want to be your God and tell you what to do. 
And thus I take away all reality that's knowable and I seal you into a wall, give you a half a bowl of rice and point a gun at you if you think about leaving. How do we protect a culture from that? By educating them that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with what? Inalienable rights, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. For this reason, governments were instituted among men. Welcome to Western Theology. Any questions tonight? Your words tonight were self-evident truths. How do we get these truths back into our universities and schools? Well, I don't know how to get them back in the university, but I know how to get them back in our community. We still, as I recall, have a constitutional republic, a democracy where we vote, yes? Anyone know who the candidates are and know where they stand? Know how they feel about liberal arts and education? Well, it's time to know. Get involved. That's how we start. Let's change, let's throw our starfish back. You remember that illustration? Or do I have to bore you again with it? Yeah, time for one more question right here. Gail? Hold on. I was just curious because we know that uh, the problem here at its foundation is a moral problem. And that's the problems with murder and things like that is uh, just a symptom. But yet I look at a place like England. Well, Western Europe basically is, uh, there's always the remnant. But it's not really, it's not Christian at all. I mean, it's not even religious. It's very secular. And yet the policemen there don't carry guns. And they, they do now. Near, oh, they do now? Mm-hmm. Because I heard they don't have near the crime rate that we do here. Oh, they do. They, oh, really? Yeah, England is awful. As bad as here, huh? Mm-hmm. Okay. But what I will say is um, the, the secularization of mankind, we come to a place where you can make as many laws as you want and take away guns. Norway, they're restricted, yet the largest mass killing, over 70 people were killed by somebody who got a gun. And the logic is, we, we have to make abortion legal, because if we don't make abortion legal, then only abortions will happen illegally in back rooms, right? That's the logic. Well, wouldn't the logic work with guns? If you outlaw guns, only the illegal folks will have the guns? I mean, they, they reverse the logic. That's, that's not noble. That's not intellect. That's not reason. How about this one? If we, if we do away with guns, make guns illegal, it'll be just as, as successful as what we did when we made drugs illegal. That's logic, intellect, reason, rhetoric. So the concept is what's missing? What's missing? It's not a law to outlaw something. It is accountability to a creator, a moral, right? A moral mandate that we are a creature that speaks, has logic, reason, rhetoric, and is accountable. We become a moral agent. Now, how do we become a moral agent? By engaging in the culture. And if we're silent and we're not speaking, we're not a moral agent engaging in the culture. If we're not applying, if you're not thinking about these things and applying them to your culture, 
then you, it, 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 there's, there's no effect. How did he create the heavens and the earth? He spoke them. What happened when he spoke on the earth as the logos? In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The word became flesh dwelt with man. What happened when he began to speak? We're coming up to Easter, if you're wondering. He was crucified. So why don't we speak fear? What does God's word say about fear? God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. We're worried about the next generation. We want to make it better, so we strive for that. Why do you have freedom here tonight? Because men and women fought for it. Apathy is not intelligent pietism. We getting that? I got to be careful because I I beat everybody up too much. All right. Anyone else? Last thing and we'll close. It'll be 815. We'll call it a night. All right. Put a caboose on. Keep it short. Bob, did you have your hand up? No? Okay. You were looking for somebody else, weren't you? (laughs) No. Um, Your definition, because I've I've recently learned what our founding fathers meant by the word duty, and I wanted to know your spin on that. Your what? What duty is our understanding of duty today uh, is? It's something I should do, but that's not how our founding fathers saw it. The, the, the word duty meant to our founding fathers a contractual legal binding thing. Yeah, we, we, did. we pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. So the duty was the, the term pietism. That's what duty means, pietism. Pietism means duty. So you have a moral imperative because you know the creator. You have that moral obligation as a moral agent to pledge your lives, your fortunes, and your sacred honor. We put that aside for a half a bowl of rice. And if we can just keep you occupied and busy and, and you got your, you know, three hots and a flop, three hot meals and a place to flop your head, and we just keep in making smaller and worse, if, as long as you're just fat and happy, nobody is going to contend for this. But you have what you have in a country we have because they pledge their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. Why? Because it wasn't a passion. It was a conviction. Where did they get that? They came to know God through intelligent pietism. They studied. They could play music. They could speak languages. They knew Hebrew. They knew Greek. I mean, you, you look at, you, I'm going to bring to you the, the New England primer, and you're going to take the test at the back of the book that every fifth grader would have to take, and I guarantee you, you won't be able to answer one question in the back of that book. Yet all of our founders could answer it, and they couldn't go on to the next grade unless they did. That's what, we're, that's what we're called to. How do we get there? He's knowable. Pick it up and read it. Learn.